Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Term podcast. I'm here today with Connie Regulie. She's a family law attorney, and they charged her with fake felony charges for exposing the Tennessee D- DCS. She's going to tell us all about that. It's pretty egregious and incredulous. Yeah. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing okay on this really hot Tennessee day. <laughs> <laughs> nice and cool in here. So it is. It yeah. Is. So, so what happened? How how does this even? Yeah. Yeah. What happened? So, uh, you know, I've been a big activist. I mean, mm-hmm. really before it was cool. Way back in 2008, I started speaking out just about the lack of transparency with the court system mm-hmm. and the lack of judicial accountability, how they weren't, didn't really have a system to hold judges accountable when they were really violating rights. I started carrying recorders with me all the time because I was just so appalled at the things that I heard said in the courtrooms. Mm-hmm. And so I began, they just started kind of messing with me, I might say, as mm-hmm. early as like 2009, 2010, trying to sanction me from a disciplinary standpoint. And, mm-hmm. you know, they would make a little bit of progress, but they would fail. And when I say they, I mean basically the judicial branch of Tennessee. Right. So, and in particular, those in Williamson County. So, you know, I came down here, I moved down in 2002 and I started working. I'm a single mom. I, you know, I was working really hard. And I said, boy, you know, the, the ec- economics of Williamson County is jet set, but the politics are the Flintstones because it is so backwards and so much good old boy system. It was so hard. So I just fought and fought and fought. I tried to get laws changed. I spoke to the legislature. Mm -hmm. I started using uh, social media to -hmm. build a platform Mm -hmm. in about Mm 2014-15. And I just really reached out because I really wanted families out there to be able to have some place to go to start to collect and really form a community and gain knowledge and be encouraged and have Mm -hmm. advocates and speak the truth about just some of the things that they saw happening. And so I started that in 1415. The platform started growing. It has about 18,000 people. I would do some YouTube videos, just Mm -hmm. kind of training, but also just talking about the things that were happening. And so in 2018... I had a client who was also a friend of mine. She's Mm -hmm. a mom. She's Mm -hmm. in DeKalb County, which is a small county about two hours from Nashville, about two hours east of Nashville. Mm -hmm. And she's, she has a disability and she had been, she had just been tormented and harassed by the Department of Children's Services every year. Like every year they'd go talk to her kids at school behind her back. And it, we had originally worked together about 2015 and I shut DCS down like in a heartbeat. I closed them out. And then in 2017, they tried to do something. I shut them down. And then in 2018, they came after her again. And they knocked on her door on one afternoon. 
<laughs> she called me up. Next morning, I started making phone calls to all the DCS people. I mean, right. the caseworker, the supervisors, the regional directors, the main office, the local office. And I kept leaving messages saying, this is Connie Regulay. I'm her attorney. Don't call her. Call me. Right. We will talk to you. You can make sure the child is okay. Because she the, the most critical thing to me was that she had a 12-year-old disabled daughter who had a hearing impairment and had needed special um, education and stuff through the school. She'd never been away from her mom. And I know what happens when children go in foster care and they're tossed from home to home to home and they're just not treated well. Mm. I was so worried about that child. I was so worried. And so I was like, look, we'll work with you. And they never returned my... I even talked to a detective and I had a phone conversation with him. The others I just left messages for. But I told him, I'm like, don't talk to my client without an attorney present. I mean, don't we have a right in the United States of America to have counsel? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and so they all ignored me. They all ignored my phone calls. They didn't call me back. Nobody called me back. And they went and got a secret court order behind my back in another county. They traveled to a different county to remove that 12-year-old from the mom. I was so upset. I was so upset. And so I met the mom. I talked to her about it. I, I, I'm like, look, I just can't just turn your child over. Let's go back to my house in Williamson County and we'll start making phone calls. I'm mm-hmm. going to get this judge on the phone. And so mm-hmm. when she came back to Williamson County, her and her daughter, and they stayed at my home. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've lived in Brentwood for 20 years. It's no big secret. You know, mm-hmm. Connie's not some clandestine, <laughs> you know, kidnapper or criminal. And the next day, six cop cars surrounded my house. <laughs> Still nobody called me back, by the way. Nobody called me back. And they took her into custody. They took her child, shipped her 200 miles away. Over the next 10 months, they had her in eight homes, four schools. It was horrible. It was horrible. They kept losing her hearing aid or dog chewing it up. What? Yes. And then 11 months after this had all occurred, they arrested myself and my client arrested us for felonies in Williamson County. What what was the felony? So they claimed that the felony that my client had committed custodial interference because of this court order, uh, and she had come to my house, a secret court order, by the way, no due process at all. And I was uh, arrested as her accessory to a crime. Now, the law specifically says that legal representation is excluded <laughs> from accessory, but no, they had to get me and they had to shut me up. And so I get a phone call from Williamson, our Brentwood detective. She's like, Connie, we have an indictment for you. I'm like, Okay, I'll get my client to come to town. We'll turn ourselves in. You don't have to send the cops out. So we went. We booked ourselves. They chained us to the wall. We had to go through this whole booking process, uh, turn over fingerprints, mugshots, biometrics, the whole thing's thrown into a jail cell, chained to the wall. And then when I got the indictment, I was basically said this indictment's no good because they had not put the right language in the indictment. Mm And they had, they had changed it. And so I um, just, we had, but then the judge let them change it. It was so bizarre. And it's Judge Joseph Woodruff in Williamson County. And the DA was Kim Helper in Williamson County. They worked together. The Brentwood Police Department, Detective Lori Russ, the District Attorney Kim Helper, the District Attorney Mary Catherine Evans, and the Judge Joseph Woodruff 
all basically had to work in conjunction with each other to make this happen. And so we finally have trials. They convict us. It's in the process of an appeal. And my client's case has already been reversed and mine is in appeal. But here's what I found out during the course of this. We had a sentencing hearing. Now, Keep in mind that typically a sentencing hearing is for victim impact statements, right? If there's a murder or assault or robbery, it's for the victim to get up and express how much they were injured and harmed by the crime, right? Right. That's what, there's no victim here, right? There's no victim. So the state called the DCS attorney who did this craziness and the Brentwood police detective, Lori Russ, as their witnesses, (laughs) Which was bizarre, right? Mm-hmm. And then they, and this detective, Lori Russ, the, the DA asked her, why did you, uh, get, uh, why did you do a search warrant on Miss Regulay's Facebook? She did this whole secret search warrant on my Facebook. And she specifically asked for all of my private messages, all of my deleted content, any of my posts or comments, even if they were marked private, on every page that I had. And she got like 20,000 pages just in like a four-month period. I'm pretty active in social media, obviously. So, And and when was this? So this was in 2018. And then we had this trial. So, And it takes years, because partly because of the pandemic, of course. But it was to, it was just last year, 2022, when we finally had this sentencing hearing. And so she gets up on the stand and she says that the reason she did the search warrant on my Facebook is because I was saying bad things about her and the police department. And I was alleged, accusing them of a conspiracy and a scheme, and which, of course, we all know we were. But I sat there while she was testifying to this and my jaw dropped. I was like, What? Like, this didn't have anything to do with investigating a crime at all. No. Y'all wanted to uncover all the people I was talking to. Yeah. You know, now also keep in mind, I've been to Washington, D.C. several times. I've been to the Trump rallies. I was in D.C. on January the 6th. I mean, with all of that kind of stuff just added to this, sure. I represented a child out of Williamson County who had been sexually assaulted while he was in juvenile detention. I mean, I have been out there and putting myself out there. Every time I feel like there's a breach, I do a civil rights complaint for somebody, whether or not we even can make it, you know, sustain it because I want it out there. I want that word out there that, you know, they can't do some of the things that they did. So anyway, so, you know, the, the thing though is where they failed, where the plot failed is, you know, I always say that when there's a scheme or conspiracy, if all they, if there's just one weak link in the chain, right, it spoils their plot. Right. right. It spoils their plot. And so here was the problem they had. Mm. I'm going to tell you, they wanted me in jail to poison me. They were going to poison me. I have no doubt in my mind. They wanted me silenced so bad. They were going to poison me or injure me somehow in jail. I am 71 years old. I am not some spring chicken. You know, I'm healthy. Because the district attorney only asked, she asked for two years probation, and she asked for 48 hours in jail. And the judge ordered me to 30 days in jail. And But he didn't lock me up. And so they had three chances to lock me up. When they convicted me, they had the opportunity to lock me up because I was convicted at the sentencing hearing, and they didn't do it. 
at the sentencing hearing, they had the ability to lock me up because the judge um, uh, committed me to 30 days. They didn't do it. And then we have a motion for a new trial, <clears throat> which is part of the criminal process. And they denied my motion to a new trial. And one more time, they had an opportunity in the trial court to haul me out of the courtroom in handcuffs, and the judge wouldn't let him do it. And so their weak link was they could not get me incarcerated for 30 days because that would have been, I would have been incarcerated 30 days before I even got a appeal, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they didn't, they were not able to do it. Five days later, the very same judge that jacked up the charges on me contacts the district attorney and initiates a new indictment on me for a felony mm -hmm. for aggravated perjury, claiming I had lied in a proceeding, which he performed his own private investigation. And so my attorney, I had a, an attorney representing me at the time. And he's like, he's like, Connie, I can't believe this. He goes, I got a call from the Williamson County Sheriff's Department. They asked me to just have you turn yourself in because they didn't want to have to come and arrest you. I mean, even the Sheriff's Department is apologizing by now. Wow. And so I turned myself in. I went through that whole process. I showed that it was a big fake. That was another fake crime. So they had four fake crimes against me. Accessory after the fact times two, facilitation of a felony and aggravated perjury, four fake crimes. So people need to know that if there is a corrupt local organization, a corrupt local law enforcement and judiciary, yeah. they will use their power to silence and shut people up. And it's all because I have fought this horrible system that is called the child welfare system, and it's not a welfare system at all. You know, the state gets money to take children and put them in foster care. Crazy. So, did they have any merit behind the? Before we move on, did they have any merit behind it? These allegations, these that they. No. Well, here's here is their problem, but it shouldn't be a problem because. Everybody involved was an attorney, right? I mean, mm -hmm. everybody involved. The, the DCS attorney is the one who went to the detective to initiate the investigation. She's mm -hmm. an attorney. Mm -hmm. Of course, the detective is required to know the law if they're going to prosecute somebody. Sure. The judge is a lawyer. And mm -hmm. then the attorney who, uh, district attorney who ultimately prosecuted, they're all lawyers. They right. all know the law. Sure. And the thing is, is that when the legislature creates a crime, by writing it out and making it a law, mm -hmm. you have to read that law exactly the way it's written. You can't change it, and a judge can't change it, and a DA can't change it. Right. So they all knew, and what custodial interference was, was... um that you had to, it was for a parent who kept a child after visitation had expired. That's what custodial interference was written for. Right. Now, on the other hand, they have now created a new law okay. to make what happened, what I did to try to help my client a crime. They've now made a new law for that. So, and, and I also want to tell you, this is so important. I am the poster child for lawyers who are aggressive and assertive and um, aren't afraid to challenge judiciary, to challenge the prosecutors, I am the poster child for that. And I'm, I'm pretty well known throughout Tennessee because I've gone to 
at least half of our 95 counties. I've been in courtrooms in Savannah and Roan County and Knox County and Blount County and Sullivan County and Jackson. I mean, I've been all over this state and walked in courtrooms. So I'm not just a little Williamson County attorney, you know, right. who's nobody knows me outside of these boundaries. Yeah. And I am this poster child for shut up and sit down and go along with the game. And that is one of the most frightening things of all because so many times people complain to me that attorneys will not stand up for their constitutional rights. Wow. Because they're afraid. Because yes. you have set that example for them to be fearful. Yes. They made a case out of you. Yes. Wow. So, and what happened to your client and the family? Well, she's fine. I mean, okay, she's good. back in, I mean, she's still in DeKalb County. She did not go to jail either. They did, okay. she did have to go through probation though, which is now already over after all this big deal. But, um, and her daughter was returned to her. I mean, they didn't even prosecute the case against her. It was all based on lies. Um, so, they didn't have a case against her. And they yeah. also lied when they went to get the secret order. They put in the petition, the DCS caseworker and attorney put in the petition that mother had refused to cooperate, which was a flat lie, which was a flat lie. I mean, if they would have put in that petition, mother has an attorney who's attempted to contact us and we refuse to call her back. I mean, at least, hopefully, the judge would have given some hesitation right. to trying to snatch a, somebody's child without due process. It's all about DCS. They are revengeful. They are aggressive, and um, uh, and they need to be stopped and shut down. Yeah. So you were saying that they make money for the foster children. How much money do they make? So the all the state agencies, not just Tennessee, but every single state is partially funded by the federal government. And when I say federal government, I always hate to say it that way because it's our money, right? Mm -hmm, the right. Fe our federal tax dollars that we pay that go to Washington, that come back to the states, <laughs> it's still our money. <laughs> and so they get money from the federal taxpayer dollars every time a child is removed and put in foster care. And it can be anywhere they have, it's really quite frightening. It's really very, um, oh gosh, I don't even know the best word for it. But children are, as soon as they come in foster care, they're classified. I mean, it's just like, it's just like grade A eggs. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's less than grade A eggs, but the children are basically graded for what they're needs are. And so a child can be a level one, a level two, a level three, a level four, all the way up to a level 10. And a level one child, which is supposed to be a child that doesn't need any special services, is like $800, $1,000 a month. But they go up immediately all the way up to a level 10, which is supposed to be a pretty severely disabled child emotionally. But that's basically $500 a day or about 17000 a month just to the through the person providing the care, the foster parents. So the state gets additional money to administer that. And so our state budget, like now in Tennessee, our state budget for DCS is well over a billion dollars. It peaked out over a billion dollars this past year with our new commissioner. And so, and they have 3,900 employees. And so they have to, they have to keep taking children to be able to keep getting that money. I mean, think about it. They have 3,900 employees and they only have nine, eight to 9,000 children in foster care. So 
but they're so heavy as a big fat bureaucracy with all these people up in central office that all they do is complain because their caseworkers are overloaded and overworked. And you're like, okay, you have 4,000 employees and 9,000 kids in foster care. That's like, technically, that's really just like two foster kids per employee. Why can't you manage it, right? Right. Right. You know, why are you complaining you need more caseworkers? So do we know how long they've been getting this kind of money for? Mm. Yes, we do. Okay. (laughs) I'm afraid to hear the answer. Uh, A long time. A long time. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, you know, I am really a historian Mm -hmm. on bad government practices regarding children. Okay. I'm a real historian. So... I could Forensic really... historian of bad child practices <laughs> pertaining to the government. <laughs> yes. yes, which is a really long story. It goes everything from slavery to orphan trains to Indian reservation, you know, sure. boarding schools. But let's just education. focus on our education, mental hospitals. Yes. But let's just talk about the last 50 years. <laughs> so in 1974 mm-hmm. was, now keep in mind, 1970s, a lot of crazy things happened, 1970s. Yes was now that everybody is realizing that we incarcerate more people than any place else in the whole world, that really yeah. initiated in the 1970s when we, with the whole war on on drugs and yeah. plus the privatization of prisons, right? Mm-hmm. So those two things kind of had to go hand in hand sure. to start escalating the prison system. Well, mm-hmm. it was actually also a war on poverty because our Congress... <laughs> felt the need to remove people from the poverty rolls. And so incarceration was one and taking children was the other. And so they made it a requirement that a family had to have a, quote, suitable home to be able to get child welfare payments, which really they go get child welfare payments typically because they can't afford a home, right? Right. And so they made that a requirement, a suitable home. And so that escalated in the 60s, late 60s, what early What does a suitable 70s. home yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. What does it mean? Exactly. Especially back then. Remember, it was a whole different time back then. Yeah. And so there was a, a big uh, congressional act called the Mondale Act or mm-hmm. CAPTA, Child Abuse Prevention Act, mm-hmm. that started really shoving money from the federal government to the states and tying all these strings to it. And the states had to create a plan, which included foster care, that they had to qualify. And it was for poor children at that point. Mm -hmm. And so children had to qualify as being poor. But then the state got money to give to another family to raise that child. (laughs) I mean, it's absolutely an absurd result. Because I, and I know personally cases where in recent times where let's say a dad is working in construction job to job, right? And they are living in a hotel week to Mm -hmm. week and they have three little kids under five and he loses his job or he's without a job for a couple of weeks. What happens? He can't pay his hotel rent, right? right? So he gets kicked out of the hotel. They're on the streets and now they're homeless. And DCS or CPS, Child Protective Services, will come and pick up those three children under five 
and pay $1,500 a head tax-free to strangers to raise those children and then charge the parents child support. And then when the parents can't pay child support to the state, they will terminate their parental rights forever. The people who have their children can adopt their children and continue to get the for, get the $4,500 a month. And the state gets a bonus check for $30,000. Wow. <laughs> Do you follow all that? <laughs> yeah. So we have, and now you throw in there that there are a lot of private contractors. Mm-hmm. And so these private contractors have become mercenaries for children. And we know all, I mean, we've now been out of 40, 50 years. We know all the stats are bad. If you're a child who's been in foster care, you're more likely to go to prison, less mm-hmm. likely to have an education, more likely to, you know, be divorced and mm-hmm. not have a secure job. Like all the social factors are drug, negative. Drug abuse, yeah. Are negative. Oh. And they're just continuing to feed the system. And we have so monetized the system. And then we have have profiteered it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even juvenile justice centers now, which is where, you know, they will even lock kids up for truancy or for smoking a cigarette. They're privatized as well. And they're privatized by private equity companies. And if you know anything about private equity companies, what private equity companies do is is trade. It's like a, it's like a trading game, right? Mm-hmm. Like they buy something that's depressed put some money into it and sell it off for a profit, right? Mm -hmm. And so all these juvenile detention centers or a lot of them have become privatized and they're being um, in uh, taking investors as private equity companies. So it's all just about profiteering off the children. And Williamson County is one of them, by the way. So Williamson County is building a new juvenile justice and jail center that the first report I got was $156 million. And that they were $156 million? Yes. And for juvenile jail and a new jail. I ran for juvenile court judge in 2022. Right. And part of the reason I did so is because I knew how the juvenile court system operated. And I knew that they were profiteering off for children. And I knew they were creating this new jail, which was even in the news article that it was going to be partially funded by private equity. It said it right in there. So I, I just want to clarify on this. This does not mean they're private entities. This means it's a public-private partnership. Well, not exactly. Okay. Not exact. Not exactly. Okay. A, a private equity is different from the public-private partnership. So okay. private equity is actually— So these are not public companies that they're allowing private equity into. Mm-hmm. These are completely private. Private, yeah. Okay. Yes. So, for instance, everybody knows the name Mitt Romney. You know, Mitt Romney's big thing was Bain Capital, right? And sure. Bain Capital was a private equity company. Right. So, this private equity company, which is totally private, buys and sells businesses mm-hmm. and entities for profit. Right. And so, they were investing in private equity. So, as I started researching the mm-hmm. Williamson County juvenile jail system, and I know you have a very broad audience, and I'm going to tell your audience it is everywhere. It is everywhere. (laughs) It's not just here. But they were going to have 43 mental health beds for children, 43 mental health beds. And so I started yakking about that. And Mm -hmm. I said, all it takes is for a juvenile court judge to adjudicate a child. She doesn't have to have a doctor's opinion. She doesn't Mm -hmm. have to have any medical treatment or doctor's treatment. She just adjudicates a child. 
that they're severely emotionally disturbed, and she can order that child into one of her mental health beds. She can commit them to a mental health bed, and then she can charge the state $500 a day for the use of her mental health bed, thus making a profit for the county. So this money is not going to the children? No. No, it's for the care of the children. Wow. Yes. There is so much profiteering. And let's just say a child that goes into DCS custody has Social Security benefits because they have a deceased parent. Mm -hmm. DCS will then capture their Social Security benefits and use their Social Security benefits as part of their budget. Wow. I I mean, this is just, it's so gross. Yeah. So has anybody done any kind of an audit into like what the actual, I mean, it's really obvious that this is a racketeering scheme, just hearing these numbers. Is a, there's no way that it actually costs this much, but has anybody, but I'm sure they can make all sorts of wild claims. So has anybody done any kind of an audit to see what the costs actually are versus the amounts that they're being given. So it's very, very hard. And again, I investigate this so much through source documents and I, I scour the budget every Mm -hmm. year. And, you know, DCS has had two, had two really bad audits back Mm -hmm. to back, but they aren't audits on money, Mm -hmm. which people need to understand. They are audits on compliance with the regulations that are created by the agency and created by the federal government. So it's just like, do you have enough beds for children? How mm-hmm. many caseworkers are there per child or et cetera? Mm-hmm. So, or how many children per caseworker? So they have failed their audit two years mm-hmm. back to back. And, you know, and, and, you know, we've had eight different commissioners. I, I mm-hmm. believe we're on our ninth one now. And she just comes in to the legislature and she just asks for more money. Mm-hmm. She's like, I need $156 million more this year because I want to invest in this and this and this. And they Mm -hmm. just write the check Mm -hmm. Uh, and they won't listen to the people. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've taken families up there to be heard. I've gone up there and spoke and I've told them, it's like, you don't understand how bad this is. And Mm -hmm. they are set. They just poo poo me out of the way. Then they, I've taken families up there. They won't listen to families. Mm -hmm. And I've taken children up there who've been exposed to the system and they won't listen to them. Sure. It's, it is so frightening. It is so frightful. And now what's happening? I know we have a lot of people in Tennessee who are really watching education. Yeah. In many ways. I mean, yeah. and everything from the gender, um, tra- uh, gender affirming, gender affirming, to yeah, CRT, yeah, yeah. To, yeah, CRT yes. all of the lewd, uh, library books mm-hmm. and truancy. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we know here. In Tennessee, that California has already said, the governor has already signed a bill that says for a parent to refuse gender-affirming care is child abuse. Child abuse. It's child abuse to do affirming. (laughs) Mutilation. And then we also know some of the states have tried to say that a child uh, cannot be a transgender and participate in the sports, right, of of the biological other gender, (laughs) right? right. (laughs) 
However, those cases are failing all over the United States. It's failing. They are not preserving. And I've read several of those opinions. I know one was West Virginia. I can't, I've read about four opinions, but the people who are trying to file lawsuits, it, we're losing on that because actually the people filing the lawsuits are mm-hmm. the transgenders who are denied access to the sports, right? It's not the parents who are saying we want to block transgender right. from occurring with our child's sports organizations. And so the, it's the transgender that's filing for equal protection and equal access. And the courts are saying basically nobody has proved yet that allowing them to participate is harmful. And so, therefore, there's no state interest in compelling state interest or even rational reason for a state to deny a transgender child access to that. Wow. Yeah, so it's to- we're totally losing that battle. Yeah. One of them was a very young child who was a transgender female who wanted to be a cheerleader and the school. She was probably like 10, right. and she had already transgender on like... But, so a girl who trans no boy, no, boy who trans to a girl to a girl and wanted to wanted be a, to be a cheerleader and they were like ten or eleven years old and they filed a lawsuit and won and won because they there was no compelling state reason and there was no rational reason that the state could show that they should be denied access to that. And so, and, you know, and I mean, it's go, they go through things like say, well, you know, first of all, this child is prepubescent. So there's no evidence that there's any type of testosterone or anything that would cause them to have a competitive edge. And they're already getting, you know, puberty blockers at 10 years old. So they're not going to have that. At least that's what the science says. And then the mother was like, you know, the mother is saying like, oh, my child's been living as a girl since, you know, he was five years old. So he should be, he should be allowed. To, to participate in student organizations as a girl. This is a 10-year-old. This is crazy. Yeah. So that is going, but that's going to come back. I don't know. In California, they will be taking children out of homes. Yeah. CPS will remove children out of homes mm-hmm. for failure to gender affirm. I'm just like holding my breath in Tennessee. Yeah. I mean, we've already had some gender affirming cases right. a little bit. I'm like just like holding my breath. Right. That hopefully that doesn't come here. What 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 do you think the purpose of all this is? Is it really just a money-making scheme? Who's making all this money? Because I know you said we can't prove exactly how much surplus it, it there is, but it just just common sense looking at it doesn't look like the money is really going all to the taking care of the children. Yeah. So do we have any speculation of what's driving this and who's getting this money? So uh, there's more than one force. Uh, you know, yeah, sure. I think we have to re- accept the fact that there's more than one force. Sure. I mean, I've always examined this primarily from just the absurd, perverted financial incentives yeah. that have been, that were created decades ago and have right. gotten so out of control. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the actual published reports, because I also say, look, it's a quota. These state bureaucracies are so huge. Mm-hmm. that they have a quota of kids that they have to take and they know what that quota is. And so they shoot for it every year and people are like, no, we don't have a quota. I'm Why like, on earth is there a quota? If, I mean, we're looking for these. I, 
Right, right, right. But they have Should to have we be aiming so that we don't need to, to take... Oh my yeah. gosh, wouldn't that be amazing? But obviously, they're huge bureaucracies. Like I said, Tennessee's 3,900 employees. Mm-hmm. They have to... Main, that's job security. They have to maintain those employees, and the only way they can maintain them is by taking kids. And you can prove this by just looking at the data. So... The source documents are created by Health and Human Services, which is a federal agency, and you mm-hmm. can get what's called AFCARS reports. And I went all the way back. I got from 2011 all the way up to like 21, so a good 10-year span. Mm-hmm. And they have the stats, like how many children are removed, how many children are in foster care, how many children are returned, et cetera. But you can look across a 10-year period, and it is 750,000 children a year that waivers only maybe 8% percent from that number over the past 10 years. So are we really that bad that we don't get it? And it even breaks those numbers down further. It Mm -hmm. says, because you can look at the reasons children were removed Mm -hmm. and it has physical abuse and sexual abuse. And then it has all these things like parent inability to cope, uh, insecure housing, substance abuse. It has all these other categories. If you look at physical and sexual abuse, it's only like 12% of the children were removed are removed because of physical or sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. So 85 plus percent of children are removed because of some other environmental need that a family has. Right. And yeah. so those children, and remember, a child, a child has rights too. Mm-hmm. I mean, a child is basically put in prison when they're sent to a stranger's home. Of course. You know? I mean, I go and I give some speeches and I always, you know, give this, I always sit, get real quiet for a moment. And then I go like, I go like, and I'm like, what if you hear a knock on your door at 730 tonight and you open the door and some stranger says, I'm sorry, you have to come with me. And you go like, where are we going? Mm -hmm. Right, right. (laughs) And they're like, I can't tell you, (laughs) but you're not safe here. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, and that, 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 that would spook an adult. Yeah, for and then they throw you in the back of a stranger's car, ship you 200 miles from here, and drop you off at a stranger's home. You don't even, you don't even get a pack back. They drop you off at a stranger's home. I mean, how, as an adult, how would you feel? Right. Much less as a child. And that's what happens. And, you know, they're dropping. They can't pack bags? No. No, they take them because, oh, it's imminent harm. There's like an immediate risk of danger, right? But they're not, of course. And they come at after hours. They come in the evenings. You know, I've got, there's videos online where they crawl through windows. I mean, it's like, it's, it is freak city if you really ever drill down and look at those. So we don't know. You were saying there, we have to acknowledge there are many forces. What? Yeah. So, okay. So the money, just the money from that system, the perverted financial incentives. Mm-hmm. And then, and that's just within that one agency. Right. So then you also have the Department of Education, right. which is huge, which is a big, for, at the state level, it's the most massive part of the budget, right? right? And from the federal level, of course, it does not supersede the military, but it's mm-hmm. a pretty massive part of the budget. And then there's all these ties between the state and the federal government and mm-hmm. education. And so part of the education is that they get paid. They're on a financial plan where they get paid for every day a child is in a seat. Okay. 
they get paid for when a child is in a seat and they get, it's kind of, again, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> All of this is creepy. Because you get like a base rate per child, which in Tennessee is like $6,800 a year. And that's, you know, divided, but you get your daily rate. And then if it happens to be a foster child, you get 25% more. So, and then there's all these other criteria. Mm -hmm. If the child has to have speech therapy, you get 25% more. I mean, it's all these layers of special, like, oh, we're going to give you a bonus, you know, for that child or a Mm -hmm. bonus for this child, right? And so you have the the schools who get extra money for a foster child. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the stats and you see that 25% of the call-ins to DCS are coming from the school. So, mm-hmm. and during the pandemic, like from teachers or yeah, and during the pandemic, you probably, I know there were so many things for us to pay attention to what was going on, but I, of course, again, was paying attention to education and child welfare okay. and our then department of education commissioner wanted DCS to go around and do welfare checks on the homes at the homes of children who were at home doing school on computers. She wanted to, she wanted the state to send out social workers and knock on the doors of homes because they admitted that they were getting fewer referrals to DCS because kids were not in school. And then, of course, the whole thing about vaccines, you know, the DCS commissioner said she didn't even know if the foster parents were giving the kids vaccines or not. She didn't know. It's up to the foster parent. So you have all that tie-in of yeah. the school. And now with truancy, they use truancy to take somebody's children because they're not getting the school is reporting to DCS that the kids are truant. And then they put the kids in foster care and then the school gets more money because the child's now a foster child. And school, we were talking about this before, there's like an incentive for the school in right. terms of attendance and uh, how much they get paid. Yeah, yeah. So they get that just daily base rate right. as well as with all these other criteria come up and they get all this extra stuff. So, so that's going on. And then, you know, we just have this, and I, you know, we know children are missing out of foster care. I mean, Tennessee, we know there's, it was a national report out that 33,000 children were missing out of foster care over like a two year period and not all those children were recovered. So there's some very questionable activities going on. You know, in Tennessee, we had a case where people got foster children and killed them and was still getting money and they buried the kids in their backyard i mean i mean there's some really creepy things that go on that we know so buried the kids in the backyard yes two of them and after they had been foster kids and adopted them and nobody knew nobody knew so so and then there's this you know there's a whole nother force that i talk about some i've watched i'm not i'm not really actively being political about it, but we know the gender, uh, narrative yeah. is, is frightening. Yeah. And we know that, you know, the forces, we could really have a long discussion about mm-hmm. the forces behind that because I think the forces behind that are purely demonic. I mean, they are, um, you know, they're, they're people out there who want sex with children to be legal. I mean, let's just admit it. That's right. what they want. They right. want to, if a child doesn't object or say no and it's consensual, then it shouldn't be illegal. Right. Right? That's just the truth. It's it's like, it's insane. And so the transgender and, you know, the all that gender confusion and 
the sex and the schools and the sexual books. And it's, I mean, it's on what our kids see on YouTube and anime and the games. And I mean, we have to be diligent. Yeah. What are some, so I know you said that a lot of the reports at the DCS are through teachers through the school. So what are some of your advice to families that they, like things that can be done to protect themselves and protect their children? Okay. Yeah. That's a good question because um, one of the problems is that if they come and knock on your door and you don't talk to them, they do what happened to my client. They go and they get a secret order to take your child <laughs> and they tell the judge, well, they won't cooperate with me. So it's very, very tenuous because of course we know we have rights and we have rights against unreasonable search and seizure. We have rights against them removing children without due process, but it's become so tenuous. It's very hard to deal with. So one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get an advocate bill passed at the state level and the federal level so that we can start putting out there through social media and educating and training people to become advocates who have a special knowledge in that field, in that mm-hmm. area, and then require the state agencies to let families know that they are entitled to an advocate or attorney prior to an investigation. Right. You know, because they will go and interview people and not, there's no basic Miranda warning, right? Because if you are, if you are alleged to have stolen somebody's car, let's say, and you get a call from Detective Brown and Detective mm-hmm. Brown says, uh, Courtney, can you come down here and talk to me? Mm-hmm. And you go like, well, what for? <laughs> right. Why? <laughs> Why would I want to come down and talk to you? And you said, and he says, well, you know, I'm doing an investigation on a stolen car. I mean, you're not going to go down and talk to him, right? right? Or if you do, you will go down with an attorney and a recorder. Right. Right. And you will say, and first of all, you'll say, show me what you got. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I want to know, at least your attorney would say that. Like, why are we even here? Show us what we got. Is he, you know, you have a video of her like jumping in somebody's car or what? Right. right? So, but parents are put in such a tenuous position because sure. they can take their children and hold that over their heads for months and years at a time. Mm-hmm. Right. So they do need to ask for counsel or ask for an advocate. They are absolutely entitled to ask what the allegations are against them. Right. Absolutely entitled. DCS has to check and see if a child is safe. You can, you know, you can open the door and say, here's my child, mm-hmm. you know, and you're, you know, you're safe. A lot of people who've been through this process will basically tell their children, if any strangers come to school and talk to you, don't just say, I want right. my mommy here. I want my daddy here. Yeah. You know, I, I want somebody with me. So uh, it's so unfortunate, but we have to train our children to do that. Yes. Because they can go to school, pull your child out of class, put them in a private room and interrogate them and not record it. They are allowed to do that. And the school doesn't even have to call you and tell you. It's so absurd. So absurd. Who's making these yeah. policies? Yeah, who's making these laws? That's frightening. But yes, our Tennessee conservative Republican legislature. Making these laws. Is making these laws. Okay. So advise the parents to advise their children not to, to talk to to them when they bring yeah. them in. Not to talk to them. Yeah. But the what do you advise with the parents? Because you were saying how like if they if you don't cooperate with them, that they will then do a secret. 
Well, first of all, record everything, right? So now, these days, with cell phones, of course, we can turn a video camera on in a heartbeat, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot do anything with CPS or DCS without recording it. You can't have a conversation with them if they come to your door. Mm -hmm. And you need to ask them right there in the door with your video camera playing, say, can you tell me who you are Mm -hmm. and why you are here? Mm -hmm. And if you need to see that my child is safe, Mm -hmm. I will show you my child, Mm -hmm. right? But if you don't have an allegation that Mm -hmm. my house is not safe, Mm -hmm. then and you don't have a search warrant, I cannot allow you to come into my house. Now, it's pretty frightening, though. If you have a cop standing on your porch. Sure. And I always look at cops and I'm like, look, you have a gun and I don't. Right. 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 (laughs) Sure. You have a gun and I don't. Mm -hmm. So when you are faced with that situation, it's one thing to have a DCS worker with a clipboard. It's another thing to have a couple cops standing behind her, two, maybe three cops parked in your, in front of your house. Right. Sure. And then, and you have to compose yourself and be able to, to talk to them mm-hmm. with some composure. Very difficult. I mean, just imagine that situation, especially with what the world that we're living in now, you know, where FBI are busting into somebody's house. I mean, there was just a case came out in Tennessee where the FBI busted into a house in Sumner County and killed this guy. And I mean, so it, it's, it's pretty frightening. It's, but to get that composure and to be able to say, tell me who you are, mm-hmm. why you're here with your phone playing. And if you need to see that my child is safe, mm-hmm. I will, you know, either you can look at the child or we'll do that in a safe location. Right. Right. So, um, but you know, putting them on, Putting yourself on their territory is dangerous. Mm-hmm. In other words, going to the police station or going to the to the DCS office is dangerous, very mm-hmm. dangerous. I have done it, you know, for families and parents, but it's very dangerous because now you're in their territory. I mean, mm-hmm. they can actually lock the door and keep you from leaving. And I had that can happen they? to one mom. Yes, they can. Yes, they can. How is this so... I mean, I... I I guess in some ways it's kind of rhetorical, but this is just all of these government agencies that are supposed to be protecting our rights, right? And yet we have no recourse against them when they do, when they violate basic ethics, basic laws, when they make things up, when they do arbitrary, when they make up felonies against people. So how do we have any kind of a defense? I mean, there's that whole, you know, like there, when the people, when the people fear the government, that's a tyranny. When the government fears the people, that's freedom. Yeah. And I feel like right now people are really terrified of the government, understandably so. Yes, they are. Because your child, I mean, think about it, your child. I mean, it's, even if they took your your car, even if your car gets repossessed, you mm-hmm. get a hearing within 10 days, you know. Right. But you don't get that with a child because their standard of proof for taking your child is so low that it's intolerable. It's just a, it's just a, a it can be based on hearsay. Mm-hmm. It can be based on anonymous allegations and reports, anonymous. They don't even have to investigate an anonymous report. Wow. And this happens where people have a, you know, a, 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 
ex that's mad at them or a neighbor. I mean, those kinds of reports come through. Sure. And, and actually, again, when you look at the source documents and you look at the stats, most of the complaints that are called in are ultimately not found to be abuse or neglect. Most of them are unsubstantiated. So it's just like vengeful or... Well, this whole neglect category, Mm -hmm. you know, this whole category of neglect, which is what DCS relies on and CPS all across the country. And, you know, I'll give you just another example of how egregious across the country. So there's a gentleman in Idaho named Eamon Bundy. Do you know who Eamon Bundy is? Oh, okay. So Eamon Bundy, the Bundy family or the family that stood their ground. Okay. Well, Eamon is part of the Bundy family. Okay. And he had a friend of his who was a grandfather uh, of a little baby and the little baby did have some genetic disorder and the they the parents and the baby's little like months old right uh 10 11 months maybe the parents missed a doctor's appointment and they and there's a video out there in real time of what happened the parents trapped the family at a gas station and and had called an ambulance and forced that mom to give her baby up. Now, they finally, because they resisted, they allowed the mom to travel with the baby uh, in the ambulance, but they ended up taking that baby away from her because she missed a doctor's appointment, and it's terrifying. And Eamon Bundy stood up for that family. And then when Eamon Bundy found out about the Children's Hospital, here's another connection, and we'll bring this back to Tennessee, Eamon Bundy started investigating the children's hospital and he found out that the children's hospital was doing gender affirming care and making millions of dollars. And he started being very vocal about it. They sued him. They did a lawsuit against him for libel and slander. And and he has some great videos out there on this as well. And he says, he goes, look, they were suing for $300,000. The, the damage against me was only going to be like $50,000. I just decided I wasn't going to do nothing. I couldn't go hire attorneys for $50,000. So I was just going to let them take their default judgment. Well, instead of taking a default judgment, they went and amended their complaint like three times. They trumped up the damages to like $500 million and got a default judgment against him and then came and arrested him because they said he was trying to hide his assets. Assets. $500 million. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> when they initiated it at like 50000 So he is now, uh, it's horrible. I mean, they've, they arrested him at his son's ball game. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is being so mistreated because he stood up for that. In the same vein, in Nashville, Tennessee, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital is the primary child abuse hospital that reports all these families to DCS for child abuse. And they were also doing gender affirming care until Tennessee just recently shut it down. They get, Vanderbilt Hospital gets over $4 million a year directly from the state government uh, regarding foster kids as well. So they have a vested interest in it. Sure. I, I just, I, I'm perplexed. Like, how, how do we stop this? <laughs> it needs to be stopped. Yes, it does. It does. It's, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, it's really mind-boggling. You know, and what is so sad, it's like, I am not 
the lone wolf out there saying this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the only person. No, I, I'm hearing. I, I'm hearing more and more about it, and but a lot of people not in the detail that you just outlined, and not with the financial ties that you just outlined, and those are pretty astounding. But I'm unfortunately hearing a lot of cases and a lot of parents. Um, and I'm hearing parents, and as you said, it's certainly not just Tennessee. I'm hearing parents in all sorts of states telling me, you know, states across the country that they've gotten and a call, not, they've gotten, right. yeah. And it's not just parents. I mean, yeah. there have been some, you know, what I would call the sort of the middle sector intellectuals, <laughs> right? Those from college universities. Mm -hmm. There is a really sad situation where there was a state senator in Georgia named Nancy Schaefer, and mm -hmm. she finally decided to call the whole thing out because people was feeding her information about how DCS and CPS were associated with child trafficking. She got murdered in 2010. So, and she, I mean, there's a whole speech. Do we have, a, like, definitive evidence that she was murdered? Because oh, she was well, so here's the deal. Okay. She was in her home. Yeah. Her and her husband are both dead. Okay. Both shot in the head. Right. And the only story they have is that it was murder-suicide, and her husband shot her in the head and then killed himself. Oh, these stories, yeah. <laughs> and then the story came any, out. Was there anything to indicate that her husband and she had a relationship where he might shoot her in the head? No, she was like 70. She's like yeah. me, you yeah. know? I mean, they'd been married for years and years and years, right. and she was no longer in the state Senate. And people were like, oh, they were running out of money. I'm like, no. Then other people are like, no, they had a million dollars in the bank. It didn't have anything to do with that, right? Right. So, and they lived out in the country on this very sort of, you know, way out there road. So, uh, very, yeah, it's, yeah. it's quite obvious. And then, but we've had these other people speak out. For instance, you know, there's a college professor named Dorothy Roberts and she wrote a book on shattered bonds and she talks about it primarily on how the child welfare agencies continue to destroy the black American family homes because there's a higher percentage of children per the population averages of black children that are taken out of homes and rehomed. And, and, you know, now the trend, oh, I just hate, hate to even say this. I know somebody's going to give some hate comments on this, but this trend is that you take these black babies and you put them in white homes. I, yeah, that doesn't actually surprise me, but from what I'm hearing from you, I mean, it all sounds like along the lines of eugenics. It's the disabled, the the blacks, the poor, right? The, these are all the arguments of the eugenicists and all the target audiences. Right, right, and control. And, and it's not just the eugenicists. It's also the Marxist family destruction. Sure, I would put them in the same category. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, but different different elements, different ways that different they go tactics. about it. Yeah, different, different tactics. Yeah, different tactics. Different because tactics, but there is so I call it often, I call it generational genocide mm -hmm. because they are usually I think the eugenicists use the Marxist tactics in order to right. execute their goals, yeah. Yeah, but I call it generational genocide because we are we are tearing from that child any of its genealogy. Right. All yeah. of its genealogy. Exactly. You know, and I'm not against adoption. I'm an adoptive parent. You know, sure. my kids came from Russia and, you know, we worked really hard to do that and we love each other and it's, you know, we're true family. Mm -hmm. But when you are intentionally destroying families mm -hmm. that, and then paying somebody to mm -hmm. raise the children, yeah. when perhaps that family had a, an issue that needed to be resolved. Adoption is very different than having your child like ripped from your home. Exactly. You know, adoption is a, uh, you know, 
theoretically, in most cases, it's you're saving a child from a situation where, right. you know, the parents either the parents either couldn't take care of the children or the children didn't have parents. Right. Um, that's a very different case. Oh yeah, <laughs> adoption is. is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Right. Right. And even the American Bar Association has recognized it, and they have a whole sector now on parent representation. Mm-hmm. But still. It's like, ugh. I mean, it's like we and our our group goes to Washington two or three times a year. We take people who are novices at lobbying, mm-hmm. and you know, we love doing that and working with those people because our goal and it's called the Family Forward Project. And okay. our goal through that is really to educate and empower people mm-hmm. to be, you know, willing to speak and to understand they're not alone, and to help them figure out how to make the, get their words together to make sense. And, you know, and, and if, if these people go to talk to a legislator one at a time, they don't quite get it. They don't right. get that it's a systemic problem because they think, well, what did you do wrong? You must have done something wrong to lose your children. So I'm hearing so much trafficking does occur through the Child Protective Services. Yeah. Um, and I know firsthand from some parents who've lost their children that way and were in battle with the government for years. Oh, definitely years. Yeah, years. like decades. I have a case with this mom I'm working on. Her child was removed from her nine years ago when he was a seven-month-old baby. Mm-hmm. She just made her way all the way through all the appellate process in Tennessee. She got an order from the Tennessee Supreme Court in May that said that they should not have terminated her parental rights. And now the Tennessee Department of Children's Services will still not give her her child back. And what are we? Four months after the fact, three months after the fact. And they're like, well, we need to, we need to do, we need to find out if it's going to be okay. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It's like you lost. Give Mm -hmm. this mother her child. Yeah. Give this child his parent that he was born with and they will not give that child back. Unbelievable. I haven't uh, done enough research to speak on this, but I have somebody who is coming on in a couple of weeks to talk about he he lost his child through this process, and he's been doing research on Maximus Inc. Mm. Okay, is that something you're familiar with? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, can you speak a little bit about it and— yeah, so Maximus is one of these private organizations yeah. that, you know, makes money on it. And, you know, Maximus also extends its tentacles into the child support issue, which is Title Four D. So you have, t- so Title Four is our social security money, basically. It's the code, it's the United States code of how they use our social security money, which should be used our retirement. <laughs> that was, that was the, the idea. Yeah, that's what we were sold. That was the, that, you're right. That was what was sold. It was going to go into a trust fund. Uh-huh. It was going to pay retirement, right? But they started using it for all these other things. And mm-hmm. they started disability. And then they started Title uh, Title Four D, which is child support. They started Title Four E, which is foster care. Title Four. I don't know. There's a couple other numbers out there. But uh, the child support is a whole other issue, which is really quite frightening. And Maximus totally makes money on that. But the, the whole child support scheme is a... It figures the American government would do this because, you know, we don't even know what money is anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, the federal government doesn't even know what money is anymore and what debt is. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that, like we have all this debt. I'm like, debt to who? I mean, like, who who do we owe, right? You know, we're going to default on our debt. I'm like, so what? What are we going to lose, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. who who do we owe this money? They'll never say. Have you noticed that? They, like, never say, right? 
And so Title Four It is. It's this very amorphous type of... It's a number that just keeps rising daily, supposedly. But we don't even know But it's based on a fiat system anyway. There's nothing backing the money that we're supposedly owing. Right, right. So Title Four D has this whole scheme where it creates this artificial debt. Mm -hmm. You have to go, why would it want to do that? But the truth is, is they go out and they get our Social Security money to prosecute people for child support and Mm -hmm. to create uh, inflated income levels. They Mm -hmm. can impute income, which is a total legal fiction. So if the court doesn't think you're making enough money, let's say you're making... 30,000 a year. And the court mm-hmm. goes, yeah, but you know what? I think you can make 50,000 a year. The court can say you make 50,000 a year and can impute that income to you and then assess your child support based on that income and then, and then make retroactively apply and create a judgment against you for 30, 40, $50,000 of just totally artificial debt. The- that doesn't even make sense. And then... I Like, I can't even process that. I know. <laughs> so they randomly decide you should be making 50000 even though you're making 30000 and then they decide that you have some debt that you don't actually have? Yeah. Then they ra- retroactively apply this child support number. They, they say... Based on money you don't make. Based on money you don't make, maybe never made, right? And so... It's so, completely just, just a fictitious world that they've created, and then they're giving you totally fictitious, totally artificial debt. But here's the thing, is the state gets more money uh-huh. from from the federal government to prosecute more cases under Title IV-D and to have this debt, this artificial debt. They get part of their money that they get from Title IV-D is based on that artificial debt that they've created. Wow. And so, and what's and your that recourse debt, for that? So let's let's yeah. talk about that debt. So is yeah. that debt for the child? Well, you'd like to think so, okay. okay. But what they do is that if they, if a mother gets welfare, right, they uh, assess any welfare that she gets. If the father is unfound in order to pay child support, that child support goes to the state. It doesn't okay. go to the parent, supposedly to pay back the welfare money that she's received. However, their accounting system is abysmal, and you never even know like mm-hmm. whether or not you've paid that off. The case I was talking about where they terminated the mother's parental rights, they still collected child support on her after they terminated her parental rights for two and a half years. That's just... And Maximus is part of that. So how is Maximus... Well, Maximus is the private contractor that does the prosecution for child support. But they also, in some states, they also do the child welfare case management of taking the children. And talking about Maximus, I just recently, in my research, found out there's a company in Texas called Justice Benefits, Inc. Okay? Uh So Justice Benefits, Inc., is basically a mercenary that once a child goes into the, not just the custody, but the jurisdiction of a court system, Mm -hmm. that the states and counties contract with this company called Justice Benefits, Inc. And then as soon as the court has jurisdiction over the child, they turn that child's date of birth, name, social security number over to Justice Benefits, Inc., who then tells the court system how to maximize the federal tax dollar benefits through child support, through Title IV-D, through Social Security, so they can, through all the block grants, to maximize that, and then they take a cut. 
They take up to like a 22% cut. So they are total mercenaries Mm -hmm. over the system, which they don't provide any care for any child, right? Right. They're They're just profiting off of the transaction. They're just profiteers, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, So most of this, it looks like, is happening through the school. So, I mean, one thing people can do, parents can do, is take their children out of the schools. Wow. That seems like a... Yeah, that that would be. Well, you know, there's there's a very underground movement right now in Tennessee Mm -hmm. on homeschooling Mm -hmm. and getting children out of the system. That a lot of you know, unfortunately, there are parents who can't because of their workload. You know that they Mm -hmm. have to work or they're single parents. Sure, I'm. It's my understanding that there are communities that are trying to do some sort of like reciprocal type of systems where they can help families who might not be able to just do that on their own. Right. Right. There yeah. are some homeschool community groups yeah. and stuff that provide some of that. But, you know, they're kind of hard to find. There's, sure. They're not that prolific as you would think. So homeschooling. They need to be more. <laughs> yeah. Educating the, you know, telling your children, don't talk to strangers. We used to tell children all the time, don't talk to yeah. strangers. Now we sort of lost that. But say, don't talk to strangers, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and watch people who try to talk to your children and stuff mm-hmm. just anywhere, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's some. There's some creepy, that's a a whole different story. We could get into some creepy people who are just lurking around parks looking for our children. I've run into a couple of those. But, you know, um, tell your, educate your children that adults don't, adults don't come up and talk to children without getting permission. Mm -hmm. You know, if they are acting friendly with you, that's okay. But you're a child. And they should come to your parent first right? and talk to your parent and introduce themselves and, you know, say they'd like to have a chat with your child or something. They don't just go talk to children. That's inappropriate. Of course. You know, and teaching safety is just huge. Yeah. It's just, and usually if you talk to the child, you talk to the child in the presence of the parent. You don't, like, bring the children away from the Yeah, parent. but if they're at school or sure. Girl oh, Scouts yeah. or on a playground right. or, I mean, at a hospital. I mean, yeah. you just don't even know, you know. Yeah, sure. And if you take your child, you know, if there's an allegation and you go to Vanderbilt, I mean, mm-hmm. Vanderbilt will talk to your child outside of your presence. I mean, they'll send doctors or social workers in and, I mean, they'll they'll figure out a way to do it if you're not careful. It does sound like they're using the mental health uh, angle as a way of making cases to be able to take children Definitely. as well. So is there Definitely. any kind of a buffer against that? Well, you know, the schools in Tennessee are putting mental health professionals into the school. I heard that. That's horrifying. And they also are, I don't think it made all the way through the Senate yet, but they're trying to pass a bill that if a juvenile gets, again, adjudicated, now a judge can adjudicate without any expert opinion, but if a child gets adjudicated as mentally defective, that that follows that child all their life and becomes a permanent record, right. which, you know, right now juvenile records become closed when a child turns 18. Because let's just be honest, I mean, there's a lot of teenagers out there that act crazy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> There's a lot of teenagers that talk back to their parents, you know, defy the rules. That's kind of what teenagers do. Yeah, you know, part of being a teenager. (laughs) Yeah, at least forty percent of them are going to act that way, and 
You know, sometimes parents will reach out to a juvenile court just to try to help get some other authority to help rein their teenager in. I've seen Mm -hmm. it over and over and over. And then they get caught up in a juvenile court system that is like ordering the parent to remove all the computers from their home and, and, you know, telling the parent the child's on house arrest and can't go anywhere. I mean, it's, it's so out of balance. I will tell you this. And, and when I was campaigning for judge and I went and I talked to people, the people who'd ever been involved in juvenile court with the particular judge we have now in Williamson County, which is Sharon Guffey, they said, I made the biggest mistake of my life getting the juvenile court involved when my teenager was just being unruly because, you know, you get yourself trapped in that system. Sure. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a systemic problem because of the, of the children being monetized as soon as they are within the clutches of the system. Right. I just, the thing that comes up for me over and over again is that we live in a culture where they constantly dehumanize and devalue life. And everywhere you turn, it's so obvious how valuable life is. And I actually mean like literally, fiscally valuable. They're they're capitalizing on human life at every turn, and yet they want to convince you that, you know, there's no problem with, you know, killing babies and, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, the whole, you know, we can, the list goes on and on, but they dehumanize. And yet, obviously, they're really valuable. They're making money, particularly the children. Well, I mean... (laughs) If we're, if we go down the bunny trail of the abortions, you know, of course yeah. that's all monetized as well. I yeah. mean, we know that, right? Yes. We know between our tax dollars going out for Planned Parenthood, plus all the fetal tissue issues. I mean, we know that taxes have to, it's big business. Yeah. Right. The tax, but the, that, it, that's just so infuriating that tax yeah. dollars well, yeah. are going to stealing children to Killing babies. organ harvesting yeah. Yeah, babies. And then yeah. they, profiteer off of that process along the way, right? Right, right. So, so I, I'm just trying to think of things that people can do. So what would you say, uh, as a lawyer, are there, are there any legal reforms that could be made that would make this a little bit Well, yes. I mean, better? For, well, we're trying. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing we try with the Family Forward Project. So mm-hmm. that's a Facebook platform. And okay. then just under Connie Regulli, R-E-G-U-L-I, is mm-hmm. how you spell my name. And I mean, I do some things on YouTube once in a while or TikTok or something just to help spread the word. We have sure. quite a few people who are also now... There's a lot on TikTok about people who are being uh, invaded and and attacked by the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, So educate yourself through the process. I mean, we're trying to get a couple bills passed for the for the mandating of advocates. And so training, deciding to step out and advocate for families is Mm -hmm. something everybody can do. And, you know, we do some trainings where we just train you, like, here's how to help that parent prepare. Here's Mm -hmm. how to resource the parent. Here's, you know, just so that that parent in the process has another voice and another person who can help. And, you know, you can be an advocate for somebody who has a disability. You can be an advocate for a parent going through CPS. You can be an advocate for somebody with a special needs child in education. But the but the reason that advocate is so important is because there's a degree of separation from the real trauma of the experience, sure. right? And so the parent going through the trauma of the experience yeah. is surrounded 
by all of these bureaucrats, sure. right? And even when I walk in a courtroom with a parent mm-hmm. and I'm there, I mean, I have stood in the courtroom and I have said, okay, let's see. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 people in this courtroom on the taxpayers' payrolls. And the only two people who are not on the taxpayer payrolls are me mm. and this client. Right. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, just imagine yourself just surrounded by that, mm-hmm. where an advocate who can just, you know, stand up and say, wait a minute, stop, you know, whether sure. it's an administrative meeting or helping them prepare themselves for court. You know, I kind of train, I reach out, I train and I empower people. One of the important things I forgot to say with my experience is when they got this fake felony on me. Yeah. I got a fax. From the Tennessee Supreme Court saying your license is suspended. On a fake felony, your license is suspended. I got a fax. A fax? A fax. And so the so I had probably even had like who even has a fax machine? Like Well, it was two years ago. No, it was just this past year. It came in on a fax. Wow. Yeah. Fortunately, I think I had my email hooked up to it or something. Yeah. But but so I I had probably 20 cases, maybe 25 cases yeah. of people in very critical legal battles, right? Mm-hmm. I had one mom who was going to the Supreme Court. I had cases out of Knox County. I mean, I had I had to tell these and I had 10 days to notify mm-hmm. everybody involved in all those cases by certified mail mm-hmm. that I could not practice law. And then the Tennessee Supreme Court Administrative Office sent an email basically to every judge or somehow they contacted every judge in the state of Tennessee to announce that Connie Regulay had been convicted of two felonies and therefore her license was suspended. And one of my clients in Knoxville walked into the court and ha- was to tell the court, you know, I could. And the judge was so ugly and mean to them. Mm-hmm. And they were like, maybe we can wait. Maybe she'll get her license. He's like, she's not getting her license back. She's committed a felony, blah, 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 blah. I mean, like the, the humiliation for my clients. Right. For my clients in that process who, who lost their attorney, who was winning many battles for them. And could not proceed. I mean, it's the damage to them on fake crimes. Literally fake, fake just made up. Mm-hmm. The damage that that could do. You can be a, like a good citizen, do not, yeah, like you were for <laughs> yeah, seven 70 decades. years. <laughs> <laughs> seven decades. Seven decades. Seven decades. That's crazy. Yeah, so... Okay, so we can make some sort of, so keep, take the kids out of school. I think yeah. if you can, I think that's a really good start. At least that's from what I can see listening to or you. Prepare you, them if you can. Prepare you them if you can. Um, legally, what kinds of, uh, well, either learn yourself or right. get, learn more about it technically through yeah. just researching and, you know, looking at some of our videos and our presentations. I have, yeah. Uh, people, I have active people in probably 15 states. Okay. You know, we have some presence in, I think, all the states. But, 
you know, where we have uh, grounded some people who will act as advocates within those states. But then, mm-hmm. you know, some you don't have to have an advocate in your state. It mm-hmm. can be somebody in another state because you can do most of it um, virtually. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just really learn this process. What do you need to do? And people have got to be willing to help their neighbors, you know. And yes. I mean neighbor, not necessarily the person next door, but I mean a family who's maybe in a vulnerable place, right? Yeah. You know, we have got to do that. We have lost that so much. Yeah. And I just, um, I mean, I, I, that's what I've done for mm-hmm. three decades is really try to help people who are going through some vulnerable place in their life. But, you know, we've got to do that as a nation. That's the only way we're going to be saved. That's the only way we're going to be saved. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm just thinking these people need to be depowered. Definitely need there to be There needs de-powered. to be recourse for the people. Yes. Well, we need. I mean, the fact that they can make up a fake felony and you know interfere with your life like this—that you have a felony charge. Well, yeah, and I lost my income. (laughs) You lost your income. Like this is. I lost my career that I had worked and my career that I had worked three decades to build up and my reputation. I mean, they stole my reputation from me on fake charges. You know, so there should be recourse for that. Yeah. So, I mean, I look at President Trump, you know, what they did to him and how many indictments do they have now? Right. It's like you can't even, you can't even trust that those indictments have any validity at all. Right. If you have no knowledge of the law and if you do have some knowledge of the law and you dig down and you start looking at them and reading at them, you're like, I mean, I've read the whole Georgia indictment and it's like crazy. It's like, yeah, because he complained. Because people did what they had a legal right to do as far as the alternate electors and challenging the election mm-hmm. and confronting Georgia on their fraudulent votes. I mean, sure. those are those are political challenges. They're sure. not crimes, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, um, I, you know, we're in a very bad place and we have... We need people to be eyes on, mm-hmm. um, be willing to report. I write uh, for some publications okay. undercover. So yeah. anybody has any leads on anything they want me to write about, I yeah. can help write and get those Great. stories out. I think the information does help people. Be just being aware is a good first step. And they can't got fix to, a problem if we don't know it exists. Right. We need to know it exists. And then we also, people have got to, to be willing to call and contact and email their local officials. Yes. Their local, their county commissioners, sure. their city aldermen, their state representatives. So many people still do not even know who their state representative is. Yeah, sure. No, that's true. And you've got to be able to call them up on a phone, go to a town hall meeting, shake their hand, get in their face. I mean, I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm in there. I'm at every, you know, meeting of any GOP I can find, mm-hmm. right? To go, right. you know, talk to somebody and say, and every time I introduce myself, I'm like, here's what the problem is, right? Yeah. And I tell them, and you've got, people have got to learn to be educated enough where they're comfortable doing that and sure. speaking out. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing and for all the information you've shared. If you have anything else you want to make sure that we know, please tell tell us and definitely tell everybody where they can find you, how they can support you, and yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, as I said, I do 
Family Forward Project and under my personal profile on Facebook, mm-hmm. on TikTok, on mm-hmm. whatever, Instagram, just what all the normals, right? Sure. Uh, for people who just want to, you know, pay attention to what's going on mm-hmm. and uh, join us specifically mm-hmm. through the Family Forward Project, get into that group. And even if your family is not being affected, you will see the stories of people affected. Plus, you will see that there are other professionals who are beginning to sort of congeal and try to help make some changes. Anybody wants to start learning how to go to be a lobbyist, we go to Washington three or four times a year. We are just lay people's mamas, grandmas. You know, we've taken at least one new person, two people, three people. We've been able to cover most of the accommodations through the Family Forward Project. So you mm-hmm. have to get yourself there. You have to pay for your food. You have to be willing to hike four miles a day mm-hmm. <laughs> because we have a lot of walking and just be, you know, tell your story and learn how to tell your story concisely sure. uh, because that's what we're training people to do. So sure. we really want as many people involved as possible and we'll help you and train you, which is one of the reasons why they want to silence me is because they know that I reach out to the everyday person and help teach them to be better. So I think the moral of that is that the everyday people have power. They want to, they do all of these scare tactics. They make examples of people like you because they really do fear the power that the people actually have. Yes, they do fear it. They fear me. Mm -hmm. They fear my voice. That's why they had to shut me down. Why else would they do that? There's no reason. The case, there was no endangered child. There was no child at risk, right? right? That I'm, there's no big secrecy here. I've lived in the same house for 20 years. I gave everybody my name. You knew exactly. You all had messages on your voicemail right, right. from me saying, look, we'll meet with you. Right. So, you know, they will target the people who challenge their authority. And right. if you're afraid to do it, join us so that we can take that step into that place. Right. But the, at least the power in numbers. So, yes. Yeah. So they're, that, that's what they're afraid of. Is, yes. You know, you're teaching people how they can... Uh, take a stand. So. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. And uh, the, so the website was the Family Forward? Well, the um, the, the group on Facebook is Family right. Forward Project. And okay. then either also on my name, my personal okay. profile, Connie Regularly, Great. which is also just my personal profile on YouTube. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And thank you all for watching. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.